What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, this is Obscure Season 3. Wuthering Heights, I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Georgianologist Michael Ian Black Southern Esquire, returned from Scotland, tail between my legs. Why, Michael? Why? Uh, That's what you're asking. Why, Michael? Why? Why is your tail between your legs? Because, well, I've just returned home, and uh, after... Just a long day of travel and little to no sleep over the last 36 hours or so. I have su- I have subsequently slept. I am speaking to you refreshed from slumber. Old school, by the way, with a piping hot cup of delicious English breakfast tea by my side. Mm-mm-mm. Can you smell the vapors? Delicious. I'm going to take a little sipsy just to prove it to you. Mm. Still piping hot from the kettle. Well... As you know, last time I was in Edinburgh, and a gorgeous city, had a fine time, but on my penultimate evening there, my friend Joe Stapleton, who I may have mentioned in the last episode, poker commentator and stand-up comedian, had to leave his show a night early, and so and he said, hey, do you want to take over my slot at the festival when I go? And I said, sure, I'll do a night. Why not? I thought, that. oh, that'll be fun. They'll love me there in Edinburgh. Well, Joe left, and I took his spot, showed up. There were maybe 30 people in the audience, which for Edinburgh is not that surprising. I think a lot of shows perform to very few people because there's so many shows. And especially if nobody knows who you are, and most people there have no idea who I am, just like most people in this country have no idea who I am. But that being said, I went out, and uh, almost immediately... As I started performing, people started leaving. Now, if you're doing a show with a couple thousand people, which I don't do, but uh, let's say even a few hundred people, and uh, a person here, a person there decides, oh, this isn't for me, you might not even notice them going. But when there's only 30 people in the audience, believe me, you notice them going. And it's not like they were offended. 
They were just bored. I was boring them to tears. They could not have enjoyed me any less than they did there in Edinburgh, Scotland. It was very, very humbling. It's a chaotic industry, this show business. Everything is always in tumult and chaos. And, you know, you think to yourself as a stand-up comedian, well, at least I've got that. You know, at least I can go out on a stage and make strangers laugh. No, apparently don't have that either. They just, you know, and they just got up and they were, you know, and just walked out. So by the end of the show, I probably lost, of the 30 people, I probably lost about six, maybe five out of 30. That's a, that's a tremendously high number of people to have leave, especially when they're all right in your eyesight, you know? It just was awful. just felt terrible. Don't know that I've ever experienced that before. Now, certainly people have walked out on me. That has happened. It happens to every comedian. But as a percentage of audience, never that high. And in such dree circumstances, I don't know if you recall the word dree. It was one of our uh, footnoted words. It means dreary, dreary circumstances. So I just left there kind of stunned and was just sort of ambling the crooked roads of Edinburgh back to my Airbnb feeling as bad as I've ever felt about myself. I, you know, I, I wasn't going to mention this, but here we are. I've really been fighting the demons lately, you know, the demons of self-criticism and self-doubt. We all have them. I don't think mine are any worse than anybody else's, but, you know, mine are continually enlivened by my experiences, which is to say, like, you know, you, you, you work on a show to pitch and nobody wants it. You do a show in Edinburgh and people start leaving or, you know, just all, all your best laid plans coming to naught. And that seems to be happening in, with increasing frequency with me. And uh, it's enough to put a fella in a funk, you know? I'm not saying I'm in a funk. I was in a funk that night. But it's very disheartening. And I know, uh, I feel like I know several people in the show business going through a similar thing. And I'm not going to name names, of course. Why would I do that? But I feel like I have friends and allies and compatriots who are experiencing a similar psychological malaise. Some of it is age-related, I think. Um, you worry when you get to a certain age, and I just turned 51 over my Edinburgh, uh, my Edinburgh vacation, working vacation. You get to a certain age and you think, oh, am I just done? Did, did the world just pass me by? And, and as evidence starts to accumulate that that may be the case, you know, you start to feel kind of bad about yourself. And that's what's going on with me right now. To the point where you're thinking, well, maybe I'm just done in show business and I need to think about getting a, a job at the bookshoppy, you know, or something like that. Something, something else, something, something, that, something a little less taxing on the spirit and the mind. The problem is I can't afford to get a job at the bookshoppy. Bookshoppy wages are not commensurate with show business wages. Now, look, all, all, of course, all is not lost with me. I had one bad show, and, uh, you know, I'll be doing more shows, and hopefully they will go better. But, you know, you just feel like you're, you're outracing father time there, and barely so. But then you think to yourself, well, there's 7 billion people on the planet. 
none of this matters. None of this matters. And in a weird way, that is reassuring to me, the sense that really none of this matters. And so, eat pastries. You know, if all else fails, get yourself some pastries and eat them. That is my advice to you as we begin chapter 15 of Wuthering Heights. Now, last time, we ended on a very confusing paragraph, right? So Nellie had recounted the story of Catherine and Isabella and going to Wuthering Heights and confronting Heathcliff and Heathcliff saying, hey, carry a message back to Catherine for me that I need to talk to her. And she agrees to do it with some uh, subterfuge. But then there was a confusing paragraph as Lockwood says, I'll extract wholesome medicines from Mrs. Dean's bitter herbs. And that can be read one of two ways, which is to say her bitter herbs could, be, could also be the story that she has told. But Lockwood is getting some actual medicine. And firstly, let me be aware of the fascination that lurks in Catherine Heathcliff's brilliant eyes. But we don't know who Catherine Heathcliff is at this point. At least I don't recall who that is. I should be in a curious taking if I surrendered my heart to that young person and the daughter turned out a second edition of the mother. Oh yeah, there is another there is a there is another young lady, of course. Chapter 15. And this is Heathcliff talking another week over. And I am so many days nearer health and spring. I have now heard all my neighbor's history at different sittings, as the housekeeper could spare time from more important occupations. I'll continue it in her own words, only a little condensed. She is, on the whole, a very fair narrator, and I don't think I could improve her style. So I guess we're now going to get some of the Cliff Notes version of Mrs. Dean, as opposed to the entire sweeping grand narrative. And with luck, that means I don't have to do Mrs. Dean's voice anymore, because, you know, Basically, for months and months and months, I've been putting on a Mrs. Doubtfire voice and trying to read in the first person of Mrs. Dean, which was never my intention as I was plowing through Wuthering Heights. In the evening, she said, the evening of my visit to the Heights, I knew. Wait, what? In the evening, she said, the evening of my visit to the Heights, I knew, as well as if I saw him, that Mr. Heathcliff was about the place, and I shunned going out because I still carried... Oh, so this is still Mrs. Dean, so I still have to... I still have to do her voice, because he is, he said. I'll continue it in her own words. So I still have to do the voice. That's annoying to me. I thought he was just going to do, like, a third-person quick summary, but no. <sighs> Fucking hell, Lockwood. Fucking hell. In the evening, she said, the evening of my visit to the Heights... Wait, what? In the evening, she said. The e- Who's she? Mrs. Dean, in the evening, she said, the evening of my visit to the Heights, I knew, as well as if I saw him, that Mr. Heathcliff was about the place, and I shunned going out because I still carried his letter in my pocket and didn't want to be threatened or teased any more. I had made up my mind not to give it till my master went somewhere, as I could not guess how its receipt would affect Catherine. The consequence was that it did not reach her before the lapse of three days. The fourth was Sunday, and I brought it into her room after the family were gone to church. 
there was a manservant left to keep the house with me, and we generally made a practice of locking the doors during the hours of service, but on that occasion the weather was so warm and pleasant that I set them wide open, and, to fulfill my engagement as I knew who would be coming, I told my companion that the mistress wished very much for some oranges, and he must run over to the village and get a few to be paid for on the morrow. He departed, and I went upstairs. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just go into a grocery store today and say, Hey, I need some oranges. I'll pay you tomorrow. Hey, pal, throw me some oranges. I just Throw me some oranges, pal. I'll pay you for them tomorrow. Maybe there's still little towns where you can do that, but in my experience, supermarkets want their money today. And why not? They operate on very thin margins. Nobody knows this about supermarkets. They operate on very thin margins. People think they're just raking in money hand over fist at the supermarket. No, they're not. You know, they got to sell a lot of groceries to keep those doors open. I have no idea what, what the margins are like in the grocery industry. I just thought I'd speculate. Mrs. Linton sat in a loose white dress with a light shawl over her shoulders in the recess of the open window, as usual. Her thick, long hair had been partly removed at the beginning of her illness, and now she wore it simply combed in its natural tresses over her temples and neck. Her appearance was altered, as I had told Heathcliff, but when she was calm, there seemed unearthly beauty in the change. The flash of her eyes had been succeeded by a dreamy and melancholy softness. They no longer gave the impression of looking at the objects around her. They appeared always to gaze beyond, and far beyond, you would have said, out of this world. Then the paleness of her face, its haggard aspect having vanished as she recovered flesh, and the peculiar expression arising from her mental state, though painfully suggestive of their causes, added to the touching interest which she awakened, and invariably to me I know, and to any person I saw her I should think, refuted more tangible proofs of convalescence, and stamped her as one doomed to decay. So she's already out there looking over the moors and past the horizon to her death. That's what she's looking at. She's looking at her own mortality. You know, something's changed. Maybe maybe I'm sort of like Catherine in this moment, you know, having done my Edinburgh show, just looking out past the moors, to the horizon, to the death of my career. I wonder if I look as beautiful as she does when I stare out at the death of my career. I suspect I probably do. A book lay spread on the sill before her, and the scarcely perceptible wind fluttered its leaves at intervals. I believe Linton had laid it there, for she never endeavored to divert herself with reading or occupation of any kind, and he would spend many an hour in trying to entice her attention to some subject which had formerly been her amusement. She was conscious of his aim, and in her better moods endured his efforts placidly, only showing their uselessness by now and then, suppressing a wearied sigh, and checking him at last with the saddest of smiles and kisses. At other times, she would turn petulantly away and hide her face in her hands, or even push him off angrily, and then he took care to let her alone, for he was certain of doing no good. So, Linton is really the one turning out to be the hero of this book. Why, why, don't, why don't young girls swoon and fawn over Linton? 
They should. Classic nice guy finishing last. You know what I mean? Everybody wants everybody wants Heathcliff's love. Everybody wants to crack open that walnut of a heart and see what beats within. Well, I'll tell you, just a gnarled little nut. But Edgar Linton is the one helping his convalescing wife, putting up with her, reading to her, trying to amuse her, taking his duties seriously as a husband and provider. And my God, nobody ever talks about Linton. I'd never heard of Linton before cracking open Wuthering Heights. I'd certainly heard, heard of Heathcliff, even if I didn't know anything about him. Nobody ever talks about Linton. Poor guy, poor sap, poor fella. Fell in love with her, married her. She seemed like she loved him. And then she, you know, then she turned, turned her fury on him. He didn't reject her. He didn't say, out of my house. He kept her and tried to make her better, you know? Feeling a little... Feeling a little teary-eyed for Edgar Linton here. All right, I gotta, I gotta blow my nose and wipe my tears. And God, where aren't we all, Edgar Linton? You know, we're just trying to do the right thing. And some asshole comes along and kicks sand in our faces, and that's the guy or gal that everybody wants. Boy, boy, oh boy, Emily Bronte, you got that right, didn't you? All right, I'm taking a quick little break, and then uh, back in a moment here on Obscure. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back in Obscure, reflecting on poor Edgar Linton, who's only done right by his wife, though nobody seems to be able to see it but me. Everybody thinks he's just a sap, a patsy, a fancy lad. Not me. He's my hero. Somebody should write a book from his point of view. 
I feel like there's other books written about Heathcliff. Why isn't there a book about Edgar? Let's see the movie version of Edgar. Gimmerton chapel bells were still ringing, and the full, mellow flow of the beck in the valley came soothingly on the ear. It was a sweet substitute for the yet absent murmur of the summer foliage, which drowned that music about the grange when the trees were in leaf. Wait, why would the summer foliage drown the music? Oh, because the, the rustling of the leaves, I guess, obscures the sound of the, the creek or something? I don't know. At Wuthering Heights, it always sounded on quiet days following a great thaw or a season of steady rain. And of Wuthering Heights, Catherine was thinking as she listened. That is, if she thought or listened at all. But she had the vague, distant look I mentioned before, which expressed no recognition of material things either by ear or eye. There's a letter for you, Mrs. Linton, I said, gently inserting it in one hand that rested on her knee. You must read it immediately because it wants an answer. Shall I break the seal? Yes, she answered, without altering the direction of her eyes. I opened it. It was very short. Now, I continued, read it. She drew away her hand and let it fall. I replaced it in her lap and stood waiting till it should please her to glance down. But that movement was so long delayed that at last I resumed. Must I read it, ma'am? It is from Mr. Heathcliff. There was a start and a troubled gleam of recollection and a struggle to arrange her ideas. She lifted the letter and seemed to peruse it, and when she came to the signature, she sighed. Yet still I found she had not gathered its import, for upon my desiring to hear her reply, she merely pointed to the name and gazed at me with mournful and questioning eagerness. "'Well, he wishes to see you,' said I, guessing her need of an interpreter. "'He's in the garden by this time, and impatient to know what answer I shall bring.' As I spoke, I observed a large dog lying on the sunny grass beneath, raise its ears as if about to bark, and then, smoothing them back, announced by wag of the tail that someone approached whom it did not consider a stranger. Well, I've got, I've got Squash laying next to me here on the couch and uh, behaving himself very nicely, I should say, for once. Aren't you, Squashy? He's just curled up right next to me, and uh, nobody's barking for a change. Terrific. Just a terrific change of events. Do you remember we were talking about how Frankenstein was a feminist novel or at least trying to grapple with how it might be a feminist novel and me sort of coming to the conclusion that I didn't think it was? This is far more of a feminist novel in a certain respect. In, in one respect, I would say it's not. You could, you could call it a social critique more than a feminist novel. It, but, but what I mean is... Um, I mean, it's obvious, but Catherine is, you could, you could say, in, in protest. She is in silent protest of her, uh, of, 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 of conformity, feminine conformity. That is, that is her sort of symbolic import here. She just... She just sits gazing out the window at her own death. And while 
everybody around her says, well, she's not doing anything. She's just sitting there like a lump. You could look at it as a kind of um, uh, a sit-in. You know what I mean? She is protesting her assignment as a woman to be the dutiful wife. I mean, it's obvious. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything groundbreaking. But we tend to think of the feminist novel as, you know, like Fear of Flying or something, where the heroine is out there causing trouble, making change, stirring things up, you know, doing witchy stuff, putting the scarlet letter on her chest, whatever. But this, too, is a kind of active, participatory feminism, isn't it? The act of silence, the act of immobility, her unmovable nature. She, she has created this statement herself by plunking herself down there in the, in the bedroom, staring out the window at her death as if to say, I have no other purpose in this world. If I am not free to choose who to love and how to live, then I am nothing and will participate no more in this folly. And even her disinterest in Heathcliff in this moment, which it seems to be somewhat, she's somewhat ambivalent about Heathcliff here, you could say, I think, because I'm saying it, even the prospect of being reunited with, let's say, her love, does not move her because even in her him coming to her does not restore her agency as a person. She, he is her wild side and her active and fun side. He is he when they are together, she is her truest best self. But you could say, and I'm saying it, that women are forced to cleave themselves in this culture. That you know, the culture of the book into two. There is the spirited side, the mischievous side, the fun side, the reckless side, and then there is the domestic, tranquil, mothering side. And in her role as a woman, she can't have both. She tried to live as one, you know, she tried to like give herself a lobotomy, take out half of her brain and just, (laughs) come on guys, I, I just praised you. I just praised you. And what are you doing? What are you doing? My trust is misplaced when I give it to you. Come on, calm down. Settle down. Thank you. I'm trying to domesticate them, you know? Trying to get rid of their animalistic side and just have them be domestic, tranquil house pets. But they refuse. Just like Catherine refuses. I think you get my point. Uh, Well, he wishes to see you. The dog recognizes Heathcliff, doesn't do anything about it. Mrs. Linton bent forward and listened breathlessly. The minute after a step traversed the hall, the open house was too tempting for Heathcliff to resist walking in. Most likely, he supposed that I was inclined to shirk my promise and so resolved to trust to his own audacity. With straining eagerness... Catherine gazed towards the entrance of her chamber. He did not hit the right room directly. She motioned me to admit him, but he found it out ere I could reach the door and in a stride or two was at her side and had her grasped in his arms. He neither spoke nor loosed his hold for some five minutes, 
during which period he bestowed more kisses than ever he gave in his life before, I dare say. But then my mistress had kissed him first, and I plainly saw that he could hardly bear, for downright agony, to look into her face. The same conviction had stricken him as me, from the instant he beheld her, that there was no prospect of ultimate recovery there. She was fated, sure, to die. To die! So he he glanced at her once and knew that she was going to die. She must really be in poorly spirits, you know? For reasons that are still not clear. You know, broken heart, la dee blah blah But there seems to be no medical issue there. Oh, Kathy, oh my life, how can I bear it? Was the first sentence he uttered, in a tone that did not seek to disguise his despair. And now he stared at her so earnestly that I thought the very intensity of his gaze would bring tears into his eyes. But they burned with anguish. They did not melt. What now? said Catherine, leaning back and returning his look with a sudden clouded brow. Her humor was a mere vein for constantly varying caprices. That's a word I never know. Caprice? It's just one of those words that shows up and I always skip over it, but I don't even know what it means. I'm going to look it up. Crank up the old machine here. Uh, caprice. I should know. Shouldn't I? It's, a, it's obvious. A sudden and unaccountable change of mood or behavior. Thank you, machine. Her humor was a mere vein for constantly varying caprices. You and Edgar have broken my heart, Heathcliff, and you both come to bewail the deed to me, as if you were the people to be pitied. I shall not pity you, not I. You have killed me, and thriven on it, I think. How strong you are. How many years do you mean to live after I am gone? So she can be of right mind when she wishes to be, can she not? giving more credence to the theory, this is all psychosomatic, that this is, in fact, a silent protest. She is committing an act of civil disobedience. Heathcliff had knelt on one knee to embrace her. He attempted to rise, but she seized his hair and kept him down. I wish I could hold you, she continued bitterly, till we were both dead. I shouldn't care what you suffered. I care nothing for your sufferings. Why shouldn't you suffer? I do. Will you forget me? Will you be happy when I am in the earth? Will you say twenty years hence that's the grave of Catherine Earnshaw? I loved her long ago and was wretched to lose her. But it is past. I've loved many others since. My children are dearer to me than she was. And at death, I shall not rejoice that I am going to her. I shall be sorry that I must leave them. Will you say so, Heathcliff? Don't torture me till I'm as mad as yourself, cried he wrenching his head free and grinding his teeth. The two, to a cool spectator, and why is she just standing there watching this? I don't know. Why didn't anybody say, hey, hey, Nellie, get the fuck out of the room, please. We're having an intimate conversation. The two, to a cool spectator, made a strange and fearful picture. Well, might Catherine deem that heaven would be a land of exile to her, unless with her mortal body she cast away her mortal character also. Her present countenance had a wild vindictiveness in its white cheek and a bloodless lip and scintillating eye, and she retained in her closed fingers a portion of the locks she had been grasping. As to her companion, 
while raising himself with one hand, he had taken her arm with the other, and so inadequate was his stock of gentleness to the requirements of her condition, that on his letting go I saw four distinct impressions left blue in the colorless skin. So we'll stop there. He's, he's, he's not gentle with her. Never has been. Why should he start now? He is passionate. He's not gentle. And, you know, Catherine rightly says, why should I, you know, you, you're the one looking all anguished. Why the hell should I pity you? I'm the one sitting here dying. And one day soon I'll be dead and you'll look around and, and say, oh yeah, there's the grave of Catherine Earnshaw. I loved her once. That was a long time ago, but now I've got these kids. I, I love them more than anything ever. And on my deathbed, I won't be glad that I'm going to see her. I'll be sad that I'm leaving them. It's an unfortunate thing to say, you know, <laughs> to an ex, you know, to like your high school crush or something. Yeah, people go on in their lives. And uh, we don't haunt the moors forever. But Catherine's about to. We know that. And Heathcliff will not recover. We know that too. But I am recovered from Edinburgh. My tail slowly releasing itself from between my own two legs as I head off to Los Angeles for a brief adventure shooting a little bit of Reno 911. They're doing a holiday special and I'm going to be in that. And uh, so we'll leave it there. I am restored back to my home country, back to the deep south, my home. A cup of fortifying tea down my gullet. And uh, we will pick up the story as we wait for Catherine to finally fucking kick the bucket soon on another rejuvenating episode of Obscure, but until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedren. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Ian Black, and get even more obscure content at our site, patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you for listening. <laughs>